Now, Father, we praise you that you are a God who is great in compassion, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. And you see our weaknesses, and you see the things that we ponder in our hearts and the struggles that we face with regard to trying to overcome temptation in our life and and then just knowing how to please you in how we um, live in the gray areas of life, in the things of this life that your word does not explicitly name as inherently good or inherently sinful. And you are so gracious to us, both in giving us your word to enable us to know how to navigate through those things and giving us grace when we fail and giving us encouragement when, by your grace, we succeed. And help us now, Father, inform us, inform our hearts so that we will better understand how to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. And Lord, we just want to serve you and be faithful to you. So help us now, protect us from error, and fill us with your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the reasons I chose to preach through 1 Corinthians a couple of years ago is because of the number and variety of practical issues that Paul addresses relative to the Christian life. He answers questions, for example, about unity and leadership in the church. He speaks to questions of morality and church discipline. He tackles difficult questions, as we've seen in the past several weeks, about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, as well as how to handle conflict in the church. And beyond all of that, he teaches us how to approach the Lord's table. He teaches us about spiritual gifts and how to understand death and God's promises for the life to come. And I look forward to that study in 1 Corinthians 15. But among all of these issues, I think the kind of question that most frequently is asked of pastors today, especially by young people, is this kind of question. How does one know the limits of Christian freedom in areas where the Bible does not explicitly speak? How does a man or woman of God, a believer, a Christian, understand his freedom in areas about which the Bible does not explicitly speak? Questions, for example, about style of clothing or about choices of entertainment, music, books, magazines, swimming in mixed company, uh, drinking alcohol, playing cards, Christmas decorations, Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, dancing, dating, and even diapers. All of these can be controversial issues, believe it or not. The Bible doesn't speak to any of these issues directly. And so questions about such things have plagued the minds of Christians and churches for as long as the church has existed. Thankfully, however, as in all areas of the Christian life, the Word of God is sufficient to speak to all of these issues in general ways that bring principles of truth, inspired truth principles to bear on every question that we can bring to the table. And here in chapter 8, of 1 Corinthians, Paul sets out to bring clarity on this issue, namely, how to determine the limits of our freedom in areas where the Bible is silent. And so let's stand together again. We could all use the exercise, but this is good for us in honor of the Word of God to stand and read it together. If you have the New American Standard, you can read it along with me aloud. And we're going to read the whole chapter, verses 1 through 13. 
I'm only going to cover about half of this today. I do want to give you, uh, before we're done today, a full understanding of the issue, though it may be incomplete, and uh, we will try to complete it next week. But here is the text. Follow along with me, or read aloud if you can. 1 Corinthians 8, chapter 1. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, chapter 8, (laughs) verse 1. Read along with me. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we have knowledge. We all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and there is no God but one. But even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there, are but one, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge. But some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, or the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who is knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whom Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, You sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated. Now, I realize at first blush, Paul seems to be addressing an issue that is totally irrelevant to modern Christians. In a direct way, in reality, however, that really... It's not the case in certain parts of the world, especially in Asia. Uh, The subject of meat sacrifice to idols is still a crucial concern. And other Asian places like Hawaii, uh, this is still a concern for believers who struggle with how to exercise their freedom. For us, however, the principle of Paul's teaching applies to a variety of contemporary issues that we face in a kind of a regular basis. And so let's begin this morning. I think it's important for us to begin by getting a historical context for uh, when Paul is writing and what circumstances are happening so that we have a better understanding of what the real issue is. And so I want to take you on kind of a, a jet tour back in time, back to the days of ancient Greece. The first thing we need to understand is that the Greeks were an incredibly religious people. It was impossible to separate Greek culture from Greek religion. They were one and the same. Everywhere you looked in those days, there were temples and statues, statues that represented their gods. In fact, even today, the ruins of those temples and statues are still there. And some of them are really quite remarkably preserved in museums and elsewhere. 
There were many gods. There were many gods in the religion that the Greeks held to. In fact, uh, the whole concept of polytheism comes from the idea that um, there are certain groups around the world who worship not one god, but many, many gods. And in Greece, there were an extraordinary number of gods. There were gods of war and gods of love and gods of travel and gods of justice or goddesses, as the case may be. There were both gods and goddesses. They had a, they had a, a god for every need and a god in every place and a god for every circumstance. As I was researching Greek temple worship over the last couple of weeks, it became clear very quickly that there was virtually no temple worship of any god in Greece that did not include food. You just didn't worship without food. Now, most of us who come from Baptist backgrounds know what that's like, right? But they took this seriously in Greek culture. In fact, the architecture of many of the temples included dining rooms at the end of the temple where the sacrifice would be offered in one part of the temple, but then you would go downstairs, and in one temple in particular, when I was looking at the architecture of it this week, there were actually three little party rooms that you could rent out to have a family event, or you could, you could rent out the courtyard of that particular temple to have a large party. Whatever it was, you could, um, you could take a portion of the temple and have a feast, Archaeologists have even discovered invitations to such ceremonies written on papyrus. One of them reads, quote, Apollonius requests you to dine at the table of Lord Serapis on the occasion of the coming of age of his brothers in the temple of Therapis. Now, Serapis was the name of a god. And the table of Lord Serapis was one of the dining rooms at that god's temple. I looked up Serapis this week and discovered that he was kind of a hybrid god. He was half a god of Egypt and half a god of Greece, but it was kind of an international thing that bound these two cultures together. Another invitation reads this, Appion invites you to dine in the house of Serapis, same temple, at the table of Lord Serapis on the 13th at 9 o'clock. Now, if you were part of the social structure of that particular city, in this case Corinth, then you would receive this kind of invitation to let you know you need to be at the temple. I mean, there's going to be a social event. The point that I'm trying to make here is that eating at pagan temples was something that everybody did. If you were at all involved with society or with going to a public celebration, be it a birthday party, a graduation, a wedding, or whatever, you would have done it in a place that was equipped with accommodations suitable for serving a lot of food and taking care of other issues with the food that we'll talk about in just a minute and having plenty of place for people to meet and greet and sit down and enjoy the entertainment. The local pagan temple was just, was just this kind of place. It really was the ancient Greek restaurant of the day. If you were going to go out to eat, you probably went with a group of people and no doubt went to the temple where there would be fresh food and it would be served adequately in a place that you could all enjoy. Another important thing to know about the Greeks is not only were they polytheistic, worshiping many gods, but they were also polydemonistic. They believed that many demons were about causing 
havoc in the lives of people. In fact, they believed that demons could possess people, as we believe that as well. We believe demons can possess unbelievers, and we see that throughout the Gospels as Jesus is casting demons out. Well, they had an understanding about demons as well, but they had a very unique understanding about how a person became demon-possessed. They understood that a way a person becomes demon-possessed is by eating demon-possessed food, specifically meat. And so if you eat meat that is demon-possessed, then you ingest that demon and now are possessed by him. But there is a way to make sure that your meat was clean and not demon-possessed. And the way you did that was you took your meat, you took your animal to the temple and had it slaughtered there and had the food prepared there. And as they offer a portion of it as a sacrifice and then a portion of it for you to eat, you can know for certain, according to their theology, that the meat that you were getting from the priest was meat that was clean. It was not demon-possessed. Therefore, there was no spiritual danger in eating that meat. And that's just the way it was. If you were living in that time, in this century, in this part of the world, then um, you would be having to wrestle with this kind of issue, especially if you were a Christian. Typically, a person would bring a live animal to the temple where it would be slaughtered, and this is the way it would go. The priest would then offer a small portion of it as a burnt offering. A lot of times the kidneys uh, would be offered, and that was the case with Jewish temple worship as well, as a sweet aroma to the Lord, where they would offer it to their gods. Another portion of it was offered as a votive gift that was cooked and placed at the feet of the statue for a designated period of time. A votive gift is not something that's burned, It's something that's simply uh, presented to the God. Nothing really happens to it. It's just left there and presented to the God of choice for a little while, and then it's taken away. The rest of the meat then would either be eaten by the guests as part of the social function in the temple, or it would be sold by the priest in the local market. After the animals were killed and cooked and the appropriate sacrifices were made, the people at that particular festival or event would eat, and anything that was left over would then be taken to the market. And so the priest would have a little booth set up in the bazaar, in the, in the local village or town market. And if you wanted to buy meat, you would go down there and you would find the priest from the temple selling meat that was left over from some sacrifice that was made at the temple. And if you were not a believer, this was the most desirable meat. Number one, it was brought to the temple. It was handled by priests. Number two, you can be sure there's no demons in it. Number three, since it was presented to the, um, to the God of choice as a meal, it was, it was already eaten. It was pre-chewed, so to speak, by the God of choice. And so it was cheaper. And he was already eaten once. And now you're going to be the one who eats it a second time. And so it was cheaper to purchase. And so it just makes sense that if you were going to get meat from the market, you would get it from the priest of the local temple because it would be good meat, it would be clean meat, and uh, it would be cheaper. And so what was happening is the Christians who knew uh, pretty sound theology would go down and they got to make a choice. What kind of meat are we going to buy? 
Number one, there's not much meat to be bought. But secondly, we want to be good stewards. And so it's better to buy cheaper meat than it is to buy the more expensive meat. And the more expensive meat is probably not even available most of the time. And so what are you going to do? If you're going to eat meat, you're at least going to be tempted to buy it from a priest from a local temple. And that's what would happen. And this caused some controversy. Another factor in the history of Greece is that if you were poor, there was virtually no meat in your diet at all. One scholar that I read this week said that uh, for people who were in the lower classes of society, the normal diet consisted of two courses. The first course was a kind of porridge. And the second course was a kind of porridge. Uh, That was it. You ate mush. You ate whatever beans and rice and um, vegetables that you could get, but it was rare that you would ever eat meat. Now, the exception to that would be if the local temple, and this was true of the larger temples, like the uh, temple to Apollos, and there were many, many temples to Apollos. But the temple of Apollos, Apollos was, in their minds, the greatest of the gods. And so if you wanted to... uh, Uh, If you wanted meat, one of the things you could do if you were poor is just wait until the next festival or the next feast, the um, uh, the next thing that happened at that temple. And they would offer appropriate sacrifices for the community at certain times of the year, especially the changing of the seasons. The solstice was a really big one. And it was open to the whole community. You didn't have to be a private party. You could just come to the temple and take part in what was going on, which meant that you would probably get at least a little bit of meat as a part of the sacrifice and, and, the, and the feasting that was taking place there. And so that's just the way it was. And all of this is to say that if you were going to eat meat as a first century Christian living in Greece, you were simply going to have to wrestle with the issue, of the controversy of its being offered to an idol. Is it allowable for a Christian to eat this kind of meat? Or is it forbidden? Some believers genuinely believed that there was no problem with eating meat that was sacrificed to an idol. And others took offense, believing that such food was inappropriate for those who belong to Christ. Now, when the Corinthians wrote to the Apostle Paul, as we saw last time, they uh, wrote a letter that was full of questions, and some of them were about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and we've already covered that. But As they were writing that letter, they wrote other questions as well. And one of the questions had to deal with whether or not, Paul, it's appropriate for a Christian to eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol. And you see this in the very first two words of 1 Corinthians 8. Now concerning, epi day. You see that again and again in the Greek in um, in 1 Corinthians, because Paul is answering, now concerning this question that you sent me, now concerning the next question that you sent me, now concerning the third question. You see that? And so he's answering these questions, and this is the question that he's dealing with. Now concerning things, that is food, and and technically meat here, sacrifice to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, 
He is known by him. This first statement really kind of tips Paul's hand in terms of the direction that he is going to go. Um, By the way, chapter 8 is just the beginning of Paul's dealing with this. It's really chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10 that he deals with this whole issue of freedom and how much freedom do we have and and how do we know when to restrict our freedom and to exercise our freedom and what are the dangers and how can we glorify God with all of this. But the first thing that he wants us to know is this. Knowledge inflates, but love inflates builds. Knowledge inflates, but love builds. Now, knowledge is a key word here. In the Greek, it's gnosis, or gnosis, with a G in the front of it. It's the basis of our word in English, Gnosticism. Gnosticism is the idea that there are a certain group of people Uh, who have attained to a higher level of knowledge than the rest of us. The rest of us are just trying to eke out a living, doing the best we can. We're pretty ignorant. We're not in um, the guild. We're not part of that group. We don't have this special knowledge. And so the people who have this special knowledge are privileged people, and the rest of us are just peons who don't know what we're doing. And that's really kind of a, 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 a description of the leaders at Corinth. They loved their wisdom. They loved their knowledge. They brought that right out of their Greek culture where religion was paramount, but it was all undergirded by their philosophy, their knowledge. And you remember back in the first couple of chapters of 1 Corinthians where Paul just hammered them and said, don't you remember that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise? Why are you so eager to be wise when you know that there are very few wise people that God has chosen for himself? The rest of us are foolish, we're base, we're despised, we're nothing. God chose the nothing, those who are not, so that he can Uh, magnify the things that are so that no man can boast before God. Again and again and again in this book, he hammers them for their boasting and their arrogance. And it was all based on this idea that we have superior knowledge. We are the keepers of higher learning. Therefore, you should listen to us when it comes to issues of controversy in areas of wisdom. The word knowledge, or a derivative of it, knowledge or to know, is used 10 times in 13 verses here in chapter 8. And as we learned earlier, uh, back in the early chapters, this was a really big issue for the Apostle Paul with the Corinthians. In this case, however, but Paul does not question the content of their knowledge. His concern is with their thinking that they have a depth of knowledge and understanding of Christian truth that was the same thing as God viewing them as spiritual. They had a misunderstanding. They thought the more we know philosophically and theologically, the more spiritual we are. Our spirituality is determined not on the condition of our heart, but on the, condition, uh, on the condition of our head. So when God evaluates me, the real question is, how much do you know? And Paul is saying, once again, 
That's foolishness. That is utter foolishness. There is a purpose for knowledge. There is a purpose for instruction. And it is not to give you the right to look down on other people. Notice with me, verse 1 again, now concerning things sacrificed to idols. We know that we all have knowledge. I think Paul is quoting from the Corinthians here. He's quoting from their letter. As if to say, you say, and I agree, that we know that we all have knowledge. But, look at the next phrase, knowledge makes arrogant. Or if you have the King James Version, I think, knowledge puffs up. It fills you full of nothing. So that your insides are really useless. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Edifies. What does edify mean? What is an edifice? An edifice is a building, right? And if you are and if you turn edifice into a, a verb, it means it is to edify, to build an edifice. And Paul is taking this from the kind of the architectural world and having a spiritual application here. Love edifies. It builds up. All knowledge does, all knowledge does is inflate. It just looks big, but there's nothing inside. It's like these, uh, these portable buildings. The elders were talking about this this morning. Have you seen those buildings? They're called the bubble uh, there's nothing really uh, into it. it you know, it's really not made of anything except fabric. It's got fabric on the outside, and it's got a, a light aluminum frame, a frame on the inside. And you can get them different sizes for uh, different needs. Uh, you know, uh, and we've jokingly said, you know what we need for our space problem at Calvary Bible Church? We just need to put a bubble up there. The reason it's called a bubble is it's like a big balloon. It's really not inflated but it's just empty. Its, it's structure is not sound. You wouldn't want to keep it for very long. And Paul is saying, that's, that's what your philosophy is like. And that's what your theology is like. Because it's directed wrongly. It's aimed at the wrong thing. You've got it aimed at exalting yourself. But that's not what instruction and knowledge is for. Paul tells us what it's for. In 1 Timothy 1.5, this is such a great text for anyone who is in pastoral ministry or anyone who teaches or disciples anyone else, and that should be most of us. And it's this, 1 Timothy 1.5. Paul says, The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The goal of our instruction is love. Love. Paul says, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. There are a lot of churches today that pride themselves on their pure doctrine. I think there are more churches who don't care at all about doctrine. But there's a way to fall off the beam the other way, and that is to pride yourself on the purity of your doctrine. But sound doctrine shouldn't make us proud. If we really understand the teaching of the Word of God, if we really understand sound doctrine, 
it should humble us and cause us to love Christ Jesus and every man, woman, and child that we meet. But this was not the case in the leaders at Corinth. When I think of um, doctrine producing love and the whole idea here that Paul is exalting love over knowledge. I think of my grandfather. I've told you about him before. To this day, I think he's probably the godliest man I ever knew or ever met. And that may not be the case, but I knew him fairly well as a boy, and I've never met anyone like him. Today, when I read some things that he's written, I've got a little book that one of his sons, my uncle, put together of some of his writings. And I read it, and it's good. And there are some things in it, however, that I I read it and I think, you know, I don't agree with that. There's some theological differences here. But one thing is inescapable to me about my grandfather, my dad's dad. And you know what? When I think of him, I don't think of his doctrine. This is what I think of. I think of a man who was always happy, even in adversity. I think of a man who uh, used to, to, um, I really think he kind of... embarrassed my dad on occasion. You know, my dad being a teenager when my grandpa came to know the Lord. And they tell, my mom and dad tell stories of looking across the street over on the other corner. I grew up in a city. And look across the street and, and there's a bus, uh, a bus stop with a kind of a covered area over it. And there's, there's my grandpa on his knees with an immigrant woman who is there with her child, and there he is playing with this child and engaging in baby talk as an opportunity to share the love of Christ with this little boy or girl so that he can share the gospel with his mom. There was nobody that I've ever known who was more passionate about the gospel of Jesus Christ and loving people into it than my grandfather. I tell you, it is amazing when I think about how devoted he was to loving people because he loved Christ. He loved Christ. And he spent so much time studying. And you know, I think there are areas in his study that he just got it wrong. That's okay, because you know what? The rest of his life I admire and I aspire to. And I think if, I, if my theology never grows one lick the rest of my life, but I'll become more like him in my love for people, the Apostle Paul and Jesus Christ would be more pleased with me. Here's what the apostle is saying. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, verse 2, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Now that's an unexpected phrase there. We would expect the apostle Paul to say, but if anyone loves God, then he has true knowledge. That's not what he says. He says, but if anyone loves God, he is known by him. And I think this is what the apostle means. He's saying, but if anyone loves God, the only thing that matters to him is that he is known and loved by God. 
He sees his own sinfulness. He sees his own unworthiness. And he just simply can never get over the reality that God loves him. Who am I that I should be chosen by God to be one of his adoptive children? I tell you, our view of ourselves ought to be like the view of David as he viewed himself under God. David in in Psalm chapter 8 said, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. And anybody can say that, right? I mean, we come week after week and we sing songs like that. There is even a popular praise song, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And we all say that. But if we are truly viewing ourselves and God rightly, then we will say the rest of what David said. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. But when I consider the heavens, the moon and the stars that you have created, I think to myself, what is man that you are mindful of him? I mean, come on. What are my children? Who are they that you would even think about us? That was David's perspective. And yet, David says, you've made him a little lower than God. Most of your translations say, a little lower than the angels. It's okay. You've made him a little lower than the highest being that has been revealed to us. And you have called him to rule over everything that you've made. Oh, God, I don't understand why you would love me like that. I don't have time to think about how much smarter I am or how much philosophy I have compared to other people. Those who are really walking in the Spirit are those who every moment see themselves in this light. The only claim I have is that Christ died for me. The only claim that I have that God reached into that filthy, grimy orphanage of the world and chose me to be his son. I had nothing to do with it. All I had was demerit. All I had was need. And by his grace, I am now his child. Beloved, we should be people who are more overwhelmed by that truth than anything else that ever occurs to us. If we can come week after week and sing the songs and we get kind of bored with the gospel, something's wrong. It doesn't have anything to do with the gospel and it doesn't have anything to do with the program of the church. It has to do with our own hearts. Because when that kind of thing is happening within us, we have elevated, we have treasured more, something of lesser value than the gospel. Whatever that is, is an idol. And in this particular place, it was wisdom and knowledge. It had replaced Christ. And that's why, as Paul explained in other passages, and we'll see those in the coming weeks. That's why they stopped loving people. Because they stopped loving Christ. 
And when they stopped loving Christ, their heart naturally gravitated to the next thing, which in their culture, in their time, was philosophy and religion. Every Christian is called to build up one another. Paul is saying, that's what love does. And if you're not doing that, then your knowledge is deeply flawed. If your theology does not lead you to loving other people, then your theology is flawed. The really important thing is not that we know about God, but that he knows us. The Apostle John wrote, herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he first loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's what should stun us. That's what should move us and motivate us to live with other people in a way that pleases the Lord. Beloved, I just got to tell you in a, in a very practical way, and two of the other el- elders who've been here for a long time, Joe and Frank, can tell you this as well. In my 16 years as serving as either pastor or associate pastor of this church, I've witnessed several occasions where the people who sinned most egregiously against other members of the church or against their spouses in their home were men or women who seemed to know theology better than everybody else. They seemed to know theology better than anyone else. If you had a question, they were the go-to people. They were the ones who knew. And you know what? Nothing wrong with that. It's wonderful for us to know theology, but that's not the only thing that Christianity is about. Your theology should lead you into worship. Your theology should lead you into love. As Jesus says, those who have been forgiven much love much. Those who have been forgiven little Love little. And people who possess the kind of knowledge that drives them to love other people are people who know how much they've been forgiven by God. And they just can't get over it. They just can't get over it. Too many of us have gotten over it. And the leaders at Corinth had gotten over it. And now their heart was set on other things. Yes, ours should be a love that is full of the rich truth and doctrine of God's word. But you know what? Even an immature love is better than a superior knowledge that only produces pride. You show me a a young, immature believer who knows Jesus loves me. They know the names of most of the books of the Bible but not in order, maybe. They're working on John 3.16. They know enough of the gospel to have been devastated by it. And enough knowledge of themselves and what God did on their behalf that their life has changed and they don't know any theology, but they're loving people. They want to serve. They want to use whatever gift they don't even know that they have yet. They weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. 
They're quick to repent, eager to learn. Give me a hundred people like that compared to one person who's got their theology down and they're proud. Oh, beloved, this is a warning to us. This is a warning to us. This is a warning to me. It's so easy to focus on theology and think that God is pleased with you because of what you know. And really the question that God is asking is, how much of that knowledge has turned to love? How much of that knowledge has energized you to sacrifice for other people, to give up your rights for theirs? Has that happened in your life? Does that happen on a consistent basis? Or are you flaunting your freedoms regardless of what anyone else thinks or says or how it affects them? Paul is saying, love builds. Knowledge, knowledge only inflates. Secondly, knowledge is conceptual, not relational. Look at verses 4 through 8, and this will be the last section we look at for today. Follow along with me. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, I know, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, and indeed there are many of those gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, and this is the salient point, not all men have this knowledge. But some being, and this is some Christians, some being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor better if we do. Here, the leaders of Corinth offer their theological justification for eating meat sacrificed to idols. And Paul is just affirming their theology here. Paul's saying, listen, I agree with your theology. Your theology is not the problem. It's your response to the theology that's the problem. It's your fleshing out the theology because your theology is not wrong. It's incomplete. It's incomplete. And here's what they were saying. This is the justification that the leadership at Corinth was giving for their eating meat sacrificed to idols. This is what they were saying. We know, number one, that an idol is nothing but a block of wood or stone. We know that. I mean, it's nothing. Yeah, somebody came along and and carved a happy face in it, but that doesn't make it alive. It doesn't make it God. So we know that an idol is nothing. It's wood, it's stone. Secondly, we know that there is only one true God. Now think of it, every Jewish boy was taught from his earliest days, he was taught the Shema. You know what the Shema is? You'll know it when I say it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. Everyone understood that. And even in this Gentile town, Corinth, They understood now that they had come to Christ, there is only one true God. We understand that. We are fully convinced that all of these statues and temples are worshiping nothing. 
There's nothing there. There's, they're, they're bowing down before nothing. It's the emperor's new clothes. There's just nothing there. But they ooh and they ah and they worship and they sing and they pray and they sacrifice to nothing. There are not many gods who created the sea. There are not other gods who created the sky or another god that created the earth and another god who created man. God the Father and Jesus Christ created all there is. Therefore, any meat that is set before a block of wood or a block of stone, even in a pagan temple, is nothing more than meat. And therefore, it can be eaten by Christians without any guilt. And that's what they were saying. Listen, our conscience is clear. We understand theology. We understand sound doctrine. Our conscience is clear. Our conscience is clear. This is the kind of ironclad logic that believers often employ to make their case for exercising Christian liberty. And Paul doesn't disagree again with their theological premise In fact, he agrees that an idol is nothing more than wood or stone, and that meat sacrificed to an idol is nothing more than meat. So what's the problem, they will ask? What's the problem? We have liberty in Christ. That's what you've taught us, Paul. We have liberty in Christ. We have freedom to eat. There's no sin here. Our conscience is clear. But again, if they had had approached this like... David approached it, they wouldn't have been so secure in their clean conscience. They may have said like this, who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults and keep back your servants from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgressions. He's saying, he's saying, God, my conscience is clear. And as Paul would, would say in 1 Corinthians, in fact, we've already gone over this, just because I don't feel any pangs of conscience doesn't mean by that I'm acquitted. It is possible that I can be sinning and feel nothing in my heart. In fact, I can be joyful about it and still be sinning. That's what David believed. And that's what the Apostle Paul believed. So Paul, however, argues here, quite to the contrary of the leaders at Corinth. He would say this in response to, we have liberty in Christ, we have freedom to eat, there is no sin here, our conscience is clear. Paul would argue this, there is one critical piece missing from your theology. You have left out the part where You love your neighbor as yourself. That applies to every point of theology. It is the ultimate commandment. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You see, in the Christian life, knowledge is essential, but it is not sufficient. Let me say it again. In the Christian life, knowledge is essential, but it is not sufficient. Without love, all our theological knowledge is of no value. Paul will take up this theme again when he gets into the use of spiritual gifts, and, and we won't take the time to, to delve into that because we will in another year or so when we get a couple of chapters down the road. But, 
If you would just flip your page just for a minute and let me show you this in 1 Corinthians 13. Now, last week we talked about context. Context is what, class? King. That's right. Context is king. And so many scriptures that we think we understand fully because we can quote them. Yet we don't have a full understanding of them because we don't know their context. So here we are in chapter 8, and Paul is teaching us about knowledge and theology, and he's hammering on these guys, and has been ever since chapter 1. So when we get to the love chapter, it takes on more powerful meaning. I'm going to skip the love section and just read the first and the last components of this chapter, starting with verse 1 of chapter 13. Notice with me, Paul says, If I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and, what's the next word? Know all mysteries and all what? Knowledge. And I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love. I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor and I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it it, it profits me nada. Nothing. Zilch. Now skip down to verse 8. Here's love. Love never fails. But where there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are any tongues, they will cease. If there is what? Knowledge, it will be done away. For we know how much? In part, Paul's saying, listen, none of us have all knowledge. All of our knowledge is incomplete. Therefore, why should we boast about that? None of us knows it all, only God. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child and think like a child. You see, you see him hammering the Corinthians here? You speak like a child, you think like a child, you're reasoning like children. But when I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as also I have been fully known. Sound familiar? But now faith, hope, love, Abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. You see, they had totally missed it. They would have said, the greatest of these is knowledge. Gnosis. We are the Gnostics. We are the ones who have superior wisdom and understanding. And the Apostle Paul says, that may be true. But all of your wisdom and understanding is as nothing in God's sight because you are proud and know nothing of love. The goal of your knowledge is self-exaltation, not love. The reality is that you may be absolutely right in your theological understanding about a controversial issue, and that's great. 
I mean, that's a good start. But that's not all that God demands of us. We must also take into account how our behavior will affect others for whom Christ died. And you know what? Any child of God at any level of spirituality can do that even without the theological knowledge. I mean, you can just look at a situation where a brother is being uh, potentially offended by what you're doing or what you're wearing or what you're saying or where you're going. And as a baby believer, you can say, I know I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself. Maybe I'll stop doing this for his sake. And then I'll need to figure out whether or not what I was doing was wrong. You see, not everyone is going to have the level of understanding that you have. Not everyone is as theologically enlightened as you are. And that's precisely his point. Look at verse 7. However, not all men have this knowledge. Not all men have this knowledge. Some people have recently been saved out of a pagan culture where eating meat sacrificed to an idol was an act of demon worship. Eating that food now? My goodness, that would make a butchery of their conscience. They do not yet have the capacity to understand that nothing has really happened to the food. It's just meat. But until they grow in their understanding and their conscience becomes more informed so it's not condemning them anymore about something that isn't inherently sinful, then eating a meal that contains meat sacrificed to an idol will cause their conscience to be defiled. You say, but they haven't sinned, right? They have. They have sinned. But I thought you just said that there's nothing wrong with the meat, really, and that eating it is not inherently sinful. That's exactly what I said. Then how, pray tell, can it be sin? Turn to Romans 14. If we have time, we'll deal with this more thoroughly next week. Let's just pick up in verse 21. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves or in what he does. But he who doubts, that is, He whose conscience is pricked about a certain activity is condemned if he eats. In other words, if eating that meat is something you have to do in violation against your conscience, then you are condemned. Why? Because his eating is not from faith, and here we go, and whatever is not from faith is sin. You say, I can do something that is not inherently sinful and it can be sin for me to which I would respond as the Apostle Paul does, absolutely. If your conscience bothers you, if you think in your heart that what I'm about to do is not something that pleases the Lord, this this may very well displease the Lord and you do it anyway, then Paul says it doesn't matter, nothing else matters. You've just sinned. But here's the thing. Paul's not talking to that person. He's talking to those who have knowledge. He's talking to them and he's saying, don't you realize the predicament that you're putting your weaker brother into? 
You are tempting them to sin. Even though this is your liberty, nevertheless, when you exercise it in their presence or where they can see you, you are tempting them to sin. He gets even more explicit about that later in the chapter, and we'll see that next time. Someone may ask then, well, doesn't the weaker brother have some responsibility here? I mean, I mean, at some point, doesn't the weaker brother need to grow up? And, and that's a good question. But until then, what's your responsibility? Until then, the rest of us have a great responsibility. We need to love that brother or sister by freely choosing not to do that thing for the sake of the brother or sister's conscience. In other words, we put the other person's interests above our own. It's exactly what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2. We put the, other, we put the interests of the other person ahead of our own. And by the way, the next thing there that Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 is this. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who existed in the form of God, etc., etc. You be humble like Christ was humble. Stop exalting yourself, your interest, and your needs. Don't you realize that the only one who really was God didn't do that? He put my interests above his own. He put my life ahead of his life, even unto death on a cross. You haven't done that. You have not done that. What do we do with a a person who hasn't grown up yet? You love them. You serve them. And you rearrange your life and your priorities to love him. Now, in the time remaining, let me just hit two issues really quickly. Because there's more, and I'll try to hit some more next week just to be real practical here. What about drinking alcohol? Can a Christian drink alcohol? Now, some of you are already starting to wake up. (laughs) Can a Christian drink alcohol? Think about the question of whether or not a a Christian has the freedom to drink alcohol. The brother with knowledge, the brother with knowledge may say something like this. I have freedom to drink a glass of beer or wine at supper because there's no prohibition against drinking alcohol in the Bible. Paul simply says, do not get drunk with wine, Ephesians 5.18. I've never gotten drunk, but I do enjoy a good glass of wine. Who has the authority to say that I should not exercise my spiritual liberty? I'm free in Christ. Paul might answer this way. Yes, you do have freedom in Christ. And drinking wine, or beer for that matter, has not been forbidden. But what if a brother in the Lord who has been saved out of alcoholism and, who's, and in whose conscience is, is very, his conscience is very sensitive to that particular issue, and he's in your church, let's say, And he goes to that restaurant and he sees you drinking. On the one hand, he may be tempted because of your example. He may look at you as a spiritual superior and say, Oh, I didn't realize we could do that. And he might start drinking again to his own destruction. Or 
He may look at you and from that moment on say, that guy's a loser. I mean, what a hypocrite. I can't believe he's drinking. Either way, you've tempted him. Paul would say this, verse 13. If I can apply it this way. Therefore, if alcohol causes my brother to stumble, I will never drink again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Beloved, that's radical Christianity. That's true love. The Christian ethic says, knowledge must always lead to love. And knowledge without love is not freedom, it's tyranny. No one who is a Christian has been given the right to flaunt their freedom. You say, well, can I have a glass of wine with my wife in my house all by ourselves? That's between you and the Lord. What about clothing? These same issues play out in how Christian women dress, especially when they come to church. A young lady or an older one with knowledge may say, the Bible does not dictate what kind of clothing a woman should wear or not wear, except that we should dress like women and be modest. God has given me an attractive figure, and I have the right to wear stylish clothing as long as I don't cross the line into blatant immodesty. And the Apostle Paul might answer like this, your theology is absolutely correct. But, what if you know because others have told you, that if a, that there's a brother or many brethren in Christ who struggle with lust, as most men do, and he comes to church to worship and finds himself distracted, even tempted, by the clothing that you in your freedom have chosen to wear. On the one hand, he may be tempted with lustful thoughts right there in the worship service. On the other hand, as a man who's pursuing Christ-likeness, as a young man perhaps, who is pursuing Christ's likeness, he may find it necessary to hold himself aloof from you because his conscience bothers him whenever you're near. And then what happens to unity in the body? And it's an unnecessary breach. If the Apostle Paul were a woman, he would say this, again, verse 13, Therefore, if my stylish clothing causes my brother to stumble, I will never wear such a thing to church again so that I will never cause my brother to stumble. You say, really? Really? To which the Apostle Paul would answer, really? <laughs> That's the standard to which we're called. And it just doesn't have to do, it's not only about alcohol and clothing. Oh, it's about so many issues. So many issues in the Christian life. So many, many issues. But we have to learn this, beloved. If we are going to be a unified church that exalts the Lord Jesus Christ and shows the world what God is like, then we have to live like him. We need to have the same priorities that he had. And that means denying self for the sake of loving people, sometimes to our own hurt, sometimes to our own joy, and always to the glory of God. And so what are the limits of a Christian's freedom to participate 
and the practical issues about which the Bible is silent? Well, the limits are determined by your commitment to love the weaker brother and sister by making his sensitive conscience a higher priority in your mind than your own freedom to please yourself. Well, there's more to this text for us to discover. And there's always the question about how to respond to the professional weaker brother. Have have I mentioned him yet? The professional weaker brother? I mean, who finds a fault with anything? I mean, you can be dressed, ladies, you can be dressed in perfect modesty, and, but your dress be a certain color, and they take offense. Oh, my, we should never wear a color like that, or you shouldn't wear your hair like that, or you shouldn't play that instrument on the platform, or you shouldn't sit like that, or you, I don't know, why are you driving that kind of car? Why are you eating at that restaurant? Why are you drinking that kind of beverage? Whatever it is, there are some people who are never going to be happy. They're the professional weaker brother. They take offense at everything, and they enjoy it. What about them? Well, that's a, let me just preempt it all by saying that's a whole different category in itself. That's not what the Apostle Paul is talking about. But maybe we can discuss it next week. And then again, maybe not. Let's pray. (laughs) Lord, we love you so much, and we thank you for once again exposing our hearts. Oh, Father, I, I need texts like this to remind me that not everything is black and white. And I need texts like this to remind me that the freedoms that I have in Christ need to be on a leash that I don't have the right to flaunt my freedoms. That just as the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 5.13, it is for freedom that you have been called. However, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Well, Father, help us to obey that. And help us, Father, to enjoy our liberties every time we have the opportunity to do so in good conscience without violating anyone else's conscience. And may you be glorified in us as we struggle with these issues. Give us wisdom, Lord, and give us unity, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.